The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, one of the threads that we've been exploring over the past few episodes is the interface of religion and archaeology. It's a topic that uh, has gotten a tremendous amount of recognition, especially in these days where the impact of religious enthusiasm and fervor has, in many cases, uh, come into contact with some of the issues relating to science and evolution. We've had a couple of recent interesting broadcasts about that topic, and today we're going to go back to questions of biblical archaeology and how they relate to religion and how that type of archaeological exploration has advanced significantly in the past 10 to 20 years. My guest is Dr. Jody Magnus, who holds the Senior Endowed Chair in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She has uh, been extensively involved in archaeological research in the Holy Land. Uh, Magnus's book, The Archaeology of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, won the 2003 Biblical Archaeology Society's Award for Best Popular Book in Archaeology in 2001 and 2, and was selected as an Outstanding Academic Book for 2003. Her research interests, which focus on Palestine in the Roman, Byzantine, and early Islamic periods, and Diaspora Judaism in the Roman world, include ancient pottery, focus on ancient synagogues, Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a topic I'm sure we'll get into, and the Roman army in the East. She is currently working uh, and writing a trade book provisionally entitled Masada, A New History. Uh, since 2011, Dr. Magnus has directed excavations at the site of Hukak in the Galilee. And in uh, 2014, she was elected vice president of the Archaeological Institute of America and in January 2017, she will become the next president of the Archaeological Institute of America. So, uh, Dr. Magnus, sounds like you're a very busy person these days. Yeah, I'm exhausted listening to you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I haven't heard that one before. Um, 
it's it's fascinating topic. We've had a couple of programs specifically on the Holy Land and uh, ancient Israel and and Palestine. And I think one of the questions that a lot of people listening to the program are interested in is how you got started and how your career got started in archaeology, first of all, and how you directed your focus to uh, research on ancient Israel and Palestine. Right. Well, um, I, I've actually wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 12 years old. Um, uh, at that point, um, there were a number of things that happened. Uh, as with a lot of people, I had a very good history teacher in seventh grade, and we learned about ancient uh, history, and I fell in love with, in particular, with classical Greece, um, Athens. Uh, and at the same time, I was going to Girl Scout camp in the Pocono Mountains and finding fossils of shells and things like that, and it all just sort of came together, and I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist, and really, that's all I ever wanted to be since then. It's, I even have my ninth grade yearbook to prove it. Under my photo, it says Ambition <laughs> Archaeologist. Right. Uh, and so all along, my interest actually was in ancient Greece. That was that was what I was interested in from the start, so broadly speaking, sort of the classical world. And um, what happened is I ended up eventually uh, finishing high school in Israel and doing my undergraduate degree at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, all the time, my, my interest and focus stayed on the classical world, but I, but I ended up working in Israel. So basically, my field of specialization is the classical periods in Israel, um, think sort of the time of Jesus, you know, the Roman world. Uh, and so, you know, just by virtue of having ended up studying in Israel, I ended up working in Israel, but my, my interest in the classical period has been, you know, that interest has been there all along. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you said you started with uh, looking in the classical periods, a time of Jesus. What about before that time, the time of the kings? And, uh, well, uh, for lack of a better chronology, let's say if we look at classical uh biblical archaeology starting um, at the Bronze Age, say 3000 BC and moving onwards. Are you interested in those earlier periods as well, or have you done work in them? Um, you know, as an undergraduate uh, at the Hebrew University, um, we all had to study that. So that was a required part of the curriculum. The way that they had it set up at that time, and you know, the curriculum has changed since then, but uh, at that time, they had archaeology divided into, and I should mention actually that that a bachelor's degree from the Hebrew University when I was there was not uh, like a bachelor's degree from the U.S. in the sense that it was not a liberal arts curriculum. You you did all you did was your major or a double major. I had a double major, archaeology and history, but you didn't mm -hmm. have courses outside of your major or your double major. So I had three years, and it was a three-year degree for the BA. I had three years of archaeology. So the way that the curriculum was set up was that archaeology was divided into prehistory, biblical, and classical. And everybody, no matter what their interest, had to take biblical. And then, depending on your interest, you either did prehistoric or, or classical. So as part of my requirements for my undergraduate degree, in fact, I had a lot of biblical archaeology in the sense of what you're referring to, the Bronze Age and Iron Age. Uh, and I have, you know, uh, of course I work in Israel, so I've, you know, kept up with it. It's not my field of specialization. Um, there are things about it that interest me, but it's never been 
the focus of my research interest in the way that the classical periods are. So your main focus would be sort of Roman and subsequent, uh, if we want to put it in those terms? Is That's that, correct. Is that... first, century, first century on into the okay. early Islamic period, uh, roughly up to 8th, 9th centuries. So let's talk about that. What were your earliest projects? And one of the things that I think is very interesting for a lot of people, and and because you're talking about that particular time frame, is your perspective based on your archaeological background on the entire story of Jesus and its impact at that time and how the archaeology allows us to sort of assemble some kind of a framework for looking at the findings and integrating them with, in this case, New Testament. Right. So, you know, um, uh <sighs> What I ended up doing when I when I finally got to the stage of my my dissertation, which I did at the University of Pennsylvania in classical archaeology proper, meaning Greek and Roman proper, um, when I finally got around to writing my dissertation on periods that are even later than the time of Jesus, my dissertation is on well, it's very, you know, like most dissertations, is very specialized. It's on the late Roman and Byzantine pottery of Jerusalem, so fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, um, and. So my focus really, from the point of my dissertation, was not on the time of Jesus. But uh, very soon after I finished my dissertation, I got involved with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the archaeology of Qumran, which, of course, is the time of Jesus. And that's kind of a little bit of a separate story. But at any rate, ever since then, you know, I've, had, I've added this kind of track uh, of, you know, also working in the earlier Roman period and not just the later Roman period, um, and dealing a lot with the time of Jesus and the world of Jesus. And that has increased quite a bit since I came to North Carolina, because my previous academic appointment was at Tufts University, where I taught classical archaeology in a department of classics, but my appointment at UNC is in a department of religious studies, and in fact, my position is not a position in archaeology, it's a position in early Judaism, meaning Judaism in the time of Jesus, Uh, and a lot of students who take my classes take my classes because they're interested in learning about the time of Jesus, so my teaching and my research have come to include a lot more about Jesus and his world than, than my background originally had. So you had this very interesting duality, I think, in your training and, and in your uh, actual teaching career, where you, you sort of start out your career basically in, in the Israeli framework, and then you sort of transfer that knowledge base as well as that approach to uh, the southeastern United States. I imagine that's a very interesting transition in of, of itself because your perspectives must have been a lot different and you have to deal essentially with some different audiences when you extend into into the public domain, isn't that right? Um, well, yes, although it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a sharp transition in that way. I mean, there's a lot in between it. So, um uh, when after doing my dissertation, after sorry, after doing my undergraduate degree, I lived in Israel. As I said, I went there and I finished high school, and then I did my undergraduate. I ended up living in Israel at that point in my life for for a number of years, and then when I came back to the U.S., I went to graduate school at Penn. That was probably the biggest kind of shock to my system because the 
the academic system in the U.S., uh, what I experienced at Penn was so different from the academic system as it existed at that time in Israel. So that was really a kind of a big change. But then after that, it was sort of, you know, ever since then, I've been kind of going back and forth between the U.S. and Israel. So I haven't, it, it hasn't been like, yes, they are quite different worlds, but I've been moving in between them pretty much continuously for so many years that it's not, it, I'm just used to it, you know, and I know, you know, I can understand where different people are coming from. And so I, you know, it's not really hard for me at this point to understand what different kinds of audiences might be interested in and, you know, what their backgrounds are. So what what was your earliest excavation? Where did you, you well, you said you, you studied? <laughs> well, my, my early, well, you mean excavations that I participated on as opposed to directed, right? Uh, um, yeah, segue from one. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so my, my, as an undergraduate at the Hebrew University, I, I took advantage of being there in Israel to, um, to go on excavations a lot. So my very, and, and, and most of them had nothing to do with the classical periods. I just liked digging and I liked going on excavations. So my very first excavation actually was a Bronze Age site called Tel Kitan, which is in the Jordan Valley. Um, I was on a range of, you know, excavations of all different kinds. I was on a, uh, a Chalcolithic period excavation in the northern Negev, which is Copper Age, fourth millennium BC. So, you know, my, the the excavations that I participated on over the years didn't necessarily have anything to do with my interest in the classical periods until I got to the point later in my academic career, you know, sort of along in graduate school, where I I started to participate as a staff member on excavations. And um, from that point, I started to work on excavations that were more, you know, on my lines of interest. So in the 1980s, for example, I was the um, ceramic specialist for the Roman and Byzantine pottery at Caesarea Maritima. Um, so that's that. The first excavation that I, 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 I will, okay, so about directing excavations. The excavation that I'm currently ex, uh, directing, which is Hukok in Galilee, is the first excavation. It's the first time that I've ever directed an excavation completely on my own. In other words, I am the director. I do not have co-directors. I have an assistant who helps me direct, but she's not, she's not technically a co-director. I'm the only one on the permit. Um, so this is the first time, you know, it's kind of all on me. Uh, previously, I co-directed um, a small number of excavations with other colleagues. And um, among those was the 1995 excavations in the Roman siege works at Masada. And as you mentioned, I'm writing a book on Masada this year. Uh, so those are, that's sort of the past experience in terms of, you know, directing excavations. And... Uh... Which which was so? This is basically your first independent. Uh, first operation. independent, first time I'm the sole sole. You're director. the sole PI. Yep. You're the sole principal investigator. I'm the sole PI. That's absolutely right. Yep. Right. Okay. Um. I I think this is really fascinating, and uh, some of these topics that that you're talking about are really sort of spectacular. Certainly, the Qumran caves are probably. Um, if not the most important find in biblical archaeology in the 20th century, uh, certainly up there among the top two yeah, or three. Yeah, they've been called that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. And I, really, I think we really want to get into that one. But just uh, what led you into that particular uh, excavation? But, Was there a... The okay, so, so let me clarify. I did not excavate at the site of Qumran. 
Um, Qumran, so first of all, just for people who may not be familiar with this, Qumran is, a, is an archaeological site, a small site, on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient scrolls that were deposited in caves surrounding the site by members of a Jewish sect who lived at the site in the first century B.C. and first century A.D. Um, the site of Qumran, the archaeological site was excavated in the 1950s, it was actually excavated before I was born, by a French archaeologist named Roland Deveau, and it's never actually been fully published since then. Uh, so um, my one of my fields of expertise is the archaeology of Qumran. I actually even wrote a book on it, as you mentioned, but it's not based on my excavations at the site. It's based on my research uh based on what is what is published and what is accessible. Okay, and we're going to have to take a break over here, and we will be back and discuss the very fascinating discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls and Dr. Magnus's relationship to them when we come back in just a minute. Stay where you are. We'll be right back. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today is... Dr. Jody Magnus, who is uh, holding the endowed chair in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and she's a renowned biblical archaeology scholar and has been involved in some of the major research projects in Israel and Palestine over the past 20 years. Uh, Jody, I'd like to talk to you about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran Caves. Um, as uh, many of us know, the uh, 
These scrolls were found, I believe, in 1948 by a Bedouin shepherd, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that led to a flurry of activity um, subsequent to that time. And why don't you pick it up from there and give us your version of the discovery of the scrolls and the uh, initiation of research and the mystique surrounding all of this. Right. Wow. That's like a, you know, that's like the world's biggest topic there. So I know um, it's a mouthful, but you know, I know you have a unique perspective on it. So fire no, away. No, it's a huge topic. So, well, I'll try and, I'll try and condense. So basically, um, along the lines of what you mentioned, the first scrolls were discovered by accident in actually the winter spring of 1946, 1947, okay. when a Bedouin boy wandered into a cave in the vicinity of Qumran, found the first scrolls, um, called other members of his tribe. They they removed those scrolls from that cave, which we call Cave One at Qumran. Um, altogether, the Bedouin removed seven scrolls from Cave One, which eventually ended up in the possession of the State of Israel. And those are the scrolls that people who visit the Israel Museum in Jerusalem today see on display in the Shrine of the Book, which was built specially to house and display those scrolls. Uh, after the discovery of the first scrolls, because what, what happened is, is that, you know, those first scrolls, because they were found by Bedouin, had no archaeological context, no provenience. Nobody knew where they came from, what they were, what their date was. Um, it took scholars a few years to figure, to figure that all out once they surfaced on the antiquities market. And so eventually, by the late 40s, early 50s, scholars uh, had come to recognize that the scrolls had been found in caves in the vicinity of the site of Qumran on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. And at that point, an archaeological expedition was, was launched under the direction of a French biblical scholar and archaeologist named Roland Devaux, who was affiliated with the French Biblical School of Archaeology um, in Jerusalem, the École Biblique. And so from 1951 to 1956, Devaux conducted this expedition to Qumran, which had two main components. Uh, one is uh, that his expedition explored systematically um, the caves in the vicinity of Qumran to see if there were any more scrolls, and they also excavated the small ruin of Qumran, which had been known previously, but before the discovery of the scrolls, nobody paid any attention to it because it looked very unimpressive and uninteresting. Um, eventually, the upshot is that eventually scrolls were found in 11 caves in the vicinity of Qumran. Uh, the Bedouin, who continued to search the area also because they realized they could get money for scrolls, found about half of the caves, and the archaeologists found the other half. Um, and altogether, the remains of approximately a 1,000 different scrolls were found in those 11 caves, although for the most part what we have are not complete scrolls, but small fragments surviving from what were originally complete scrolls. Um, those scrolls were deposited in those caves, by members of a Jewish sect who lived at the site of Qumran. So his, the Devo's excavations at Qumran brought to light this settlement uh, of, this, of members of this Jewish sect. It is a settlement which is distinctive in many ways. It's not like other Jewish settlements of this period. Um, there are no private houses in the settlement. People apparently lived communally and in tents and huts and in some of the caves surrounding the site. Uh, there are communal dining rooms in the settlement. There are a large number of Jewish ritual baths, uh, and there are other strange features, including a large cemetery on the plateau to the east of the settlement and deposits of animal bones mixed with ash in open areas around the buildings. So there are a lot of weird things about the settlement at Qumran, and when you put 
the information that we have from the archaeology together with the information that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, you have to conclude that, you know, the people who lived at the site are the ones who deposited the scrolls in the caves, and the scrolls contain information that tell us about their very distinctive beliefs and practices. Now, that, so that's really the short story. Now, who were these people who lived at Qumran? I keep calling them a Jewish sect. Many scholars, including myself, identify them with a group called the Essenes, who we learn about not from the Dead Sea Scrolls, but from contemporary ancient authors such as Josephus, who describe a Jewish sect of this period with beliefs and practices similar to what we read about in the scrolls. Pliny the Elder also mentions uh, the Essenes and actually tells us that they lived on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea um, in the same area where the site of Qumran is located. So therefore, many scholars, as I said, including myself, identify the people at Qumran as members of this sect called the Essenes. I should qualify and say that Without a doubt, there were other Essenes who lived in other places around the country, but Qumran is the only site where we are able to identify this as an Essene site. In other words, we don't have any other identifiable remains of Essenes anywhere else except for Qumran. Um, the, there are, if, if you know anybody who's listening to this goes and Googles you know, Dead Sea Scrolls and, uh, in Qumran, you'll see that there are a number of controversies, ongoing controversies about the site. Um, the biggest controversies are actually the ones that probably are um, have the least credibility uh, because, you know, it's the s- sensational claims that tend to get the most attention. Publicity, yeah. uh, And that have the least foundation. So uh, one, one sensational claim that is still out there and it gets a lot of publicity is the claim that the site of Qumran is not the settlement of a Jewish sect, that pe- the people who lived there were not Essenes, were not members of, of a Jewish sect, but rather that it was something else. It was a villa, it was a manor house, it was a fort, it was a commercial entrepot, it was a pottery manufacturing center. So all of those, uh, all of those alternative interpretations have been suggested, and they are out there, and they are bandied about. Uh, they are very misleading. All of those claims are very misleading because the because the only way that you can claim that Qumran is not a sectarian settlement is by divorcing the scrolls from the site of Qumran. That is by saying that the people who lived at Qumran were not the same people who deposited the scrolls in the caves, but but that the scrolls came to be in the caves somehow, you know, under other circumstances. So that's very easy. It's a very easy uh, claim to disprove. Um, the the caves with the scrolls um, contain pottery that not only is the same date as the pottery inside the settlement at Qumran, but also has the same distinctive types of, of pottery, types that aren't found elsewhere. Um, it, um, the pottery, as it turns out, has been analyzed and is manufactured from the same clays. So we have scientific analyses now that demonstrate the connection between the pottery in the caves and the pottery in the site of Qumran. Uh, and some of the caves with scrolls are located inside the um, the natural terrace on which the site of Qumran sits. So the only way to get into the caves with some of the scrolls was actually by walking through the site of Qumran. So in other words, we have archaeological, scientific, and uh, topographic evidence that establishes the link between Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and therefore you must conclude that the scrolls were deposited in the caves 
by the inhabitants of Qumran, and the nature of the scrolls, the content of the scrolls is such that uh, you have to conclude then that, that these people were members of a Jewish sect. So that's one controversy. Right. Another so let me ask you about that, just to, to square away yeah. a number of things. Certainly, uh, so sure. you're saying that the chronology of all the archaeological manifestations on the site seem to converge, and uh, is, is that correct? Do you have radiocarbon dates that also confirm the, uh, the serial yeah, potter? Yeah, we also have radiocarbon dates, yeah. yeah. And but give we have, us, give us that I mean, time. You know, I'll tell you something. The periods that I work in, yeah, we have radiocarbon dates, um, but the periods that I work in, we have coins, you know, which give you a much closer date than radiocarbon dating. Sure. Um, the pottery of these periods is very well known and well dated. I mean, there's, you, there's, no, I don't actually, I don't, I don't think, I've never heard any mainstream or even, not even so mainstream scholar claim that Qumran dates to anything other than the first century BC, first century AD. I've never That's heard what I was getting at. That's what that. I was getting at. So you have so many converging lines of evidence that it's almost hard to argue against it. Right, I think so. So as I said, the only way, that's right, so the only way that you can um, argue that, that, the dead, that the site of Qumran is not a sectarian settlement is to claim that the scrolls in the caves have nothing to do with the people who lived at the site, but it's very easy to disprove that. Um, but, as I said, these claims get a lot of, they're sensational and they got a lot of publicity, of course. so anybody who goes around and Googles, you know, Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls is sure to come across them. What about the fact uh, that I've heard, and again, this is not my specific area of expertise, that the Essenes were actually exiled out of Jerusalem and they were looking for a refuge where they could live their particular life and that the scrolls went with them? Is that, is that something that we have any information on? Well, this is so. So, so no, no. That's 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 kind of a mushing up of a bunch of various things. Some of them are true, and some of them are not. So, huh? it is it is apparently true, even though this is also debated by scholars. But I think most scholars agree that the Essenes rejected the cult in the Jerusalem Temple, meaning they refused to participate in the sacrifices offered in the Jerusalem Temple because they thought that the temple was polluted and the priests who served there were impure and unfit to serve, and so they withdrew and refused to participate in the cult in the Jerusalem Temple. So I think that's sort of what your you know, statement is getting at, but, but there were Essenes living in Jerusalem. There was actually an Essene quarter in Jerusalem. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, and we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that, in fact, there were Essenes living all around the country. So that's, that is actually not true. Now, what is true is that apparently some members of this sect practiced what we call desert separatism. They went to live apart in the wilderness. Uh-huh. And Qumran is one such desert or wilderness settlement. Whether there were any others, we don't know, because no archaeological identif- archaeologically identifiable, blah, identifiable remains of any other such settlement have ever been found. Um, but, they're, they're, no, so they were not exiled. They were not, I mean, there may have been some members, apparently there were some members who sought to live in isolation, but, but it was not like they got exiled and they had to leave, right? So... Uh, right. So tell us a little bit about your work then, not so far away in Masada. Uh, yeah. So, you know, in, in I've, I've done a lot of work on Masada over the years. I, I actually originally first got involved 
in the middle of the 1980s. Um, just a little bit of background. The top of Masada, where Herod's palaces are located, was excavated in the middle of the 1960s by Yiga El Yadin, who was probably Israel's most famous archaeologist. And he was the head of the Institute of Archaeology at the Hebrew University, which is where I did my undergraduate degree. Um, in 1984, and so Yadin excavated Masada from like 19, in 1963 to 1965. Um, in 1984, Yadin died um, somewhat unexpectedly, and without having published a final, that is, scientific report, on his excavations at Masada. And what happened at that point was that the material from the excavations was inherited by his colleagues in the Institute of Archaeology at the Hebrew University, and two of them were put in charge of overseeing the publication of that material. And it just so happened that I had just arrived in Jerusalem at that point to work on my dissertation research, which had nothing to do with Masada or anything at all. It was on, as I said, it was on late Roman and Byzantine pottery from Jerusalem. Uh, but the, these two, you know, archaeologists at the Institute of Archaeology were looking for people to work on the publication of the material from Yadin's excavations, and both of them had been my professors when I was an undergraduate. So I was sitting in, and working on my material for my dissertation, and one day one of them comes along and asks if I want to work on some of the material from Yadin's excavations for publication. And it was just too great a temptation to resist. So um, I, after sort of talking about what was available, I eventually decided to work on the uh, military equipment from Yadin's excavations at Masada. And I, by the way, I didn't know anything about military equipment at that point, but I thought it sounded interesting. And mm -hmm. I knew Yadin had himself been interested in military history. So eventually, I worked on that material with an Israeli colleague, and it was published in the uh, final report series of, of the Masada volumes, the volume seven of the Masada volumes. Um, so that's how I originally got in, involved in sort of the story of Masada. And then in 1995, uh, three Israeli colleagues contacted me and asked if I wanted to join them in co-directing excavations in the Roman siege works at the foot of Masada, because, of course, Masada underwent a siege, and today when you visit the top of the mountain, if you look down below, you can still see the remains of the circumvallation wall, which is the wall that the Romans built around the base of the mountain to keep people from getting in and getting out. Right. And you can see the Roman camps, the siege camps, you can see the Roman ramp. Um, but none of that had ever been excavated. Yadin's excavations had focused on the top of the mountain, not on the siege works at the bottom of the mountain. So in the summer of 1995, I spent six weeks in the field uh, excavating part of one of the camps, Camp F, which was one of the two legionary camps, at Masada with my colleagues, and we also cut a section through the Roman ramp, the siege ramp that goes up the western side of the mountain, all very, very interesting. And I subsequently published the pottery from our excavations in a journal article. Um, and so I've been kind of, you know, noodling around with Masada for a while, and uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, an editor at Princeton University Press started to bug me about writing a book, a sort of a trade book about Masada. Um, and it wasn't something actually that I had been thinking about doing, but he, he was very persistent. <laughs> and, uh, he sort of wore me down, and I eventually agreed to do it and, you know, signed a contract. And that's what my project this year is, writing that book. And I'm right in the midst of trying to draft my third chapter right now. And we have to take another break, and we'll be back with our very fascinating guest, Dr. Jody Magnus, after these words, don't go away. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and my special guest today is Dr. Jody Magnus, who is at the University of North Carolina and uh, is the Senior Endowed Chair in the Department of Religious Studies. And we have been talking about the archaeology of the Jordan Rift Valley and specifically the uh, period of Jesus and uh, the Romans at uh, the famous uh, Qumran caves and at the sites of Masada. And uh, Dr. Magnus has uh, researched and spoken extensively about the excavations and the analysis that she had undertaken at those very, very famous sites. And her work has now taken her to the north of Israel, into the Galilee, and uh, she is currently working at a site called Hukok. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that site, obviously in a very different environment and different uh, setting, and how you got involved in that, and tell us what the exciting finds there are. Oh, yeah. Well, so, again, this is like so much to tell, but... um uh, you know, it's funny about what you said, moving to a different area, because I joke and say that until now, until I started working at Hukok in 2011, I had been a Judean. I had worked in the southern part of Israel <laughs> right, pretty much right. my entire professional career. You know, Qumran, Masada, Jerusalem. My last dig was at Yot Fatah, which is a Roman fort all the way at the southern tip of Israel. And now I've moved to the north, to the Galilee, so I've become a Galilean. And the reason is that in the last couple of decades, one of my uh, research interests has been in ancient synagogues. And I have become involved in um, some uh, discussions with colleagues um, and uh, disagreements about uh, ancient synagogues. And a lot of my disagreements focus on the dating 
of ancient synagogue buildings. Ancient synagogues, I'm referring to Roman period synagogues. And in particular, uh, one kind of, of, of architectural type of synagogue building that is called a Galilean type synagogue. Um, if any of your listeners are familiar with the synagogue at Capernaum, uh, mm-hmm. that is right. a wonderful example of this kind of synagogue building. And I, what I think is that that these, this particular type of synagogue building is dated too early by many of my colleagues, and I think it should be dated several centuries later. It's a debate which is not just an academic debate. It has big historical implications. The earlier dating would mean that the Jews constructed these buildings in a pagan Roman context. Wow. My dating would place these buildings in a Byzantine Christian context, meaning that the Jews constructed these buildings when they were under Byzantine Christian rule. That's a period when uh, from the historical point of view, people often think that the Jews were oppressed by Christianity, um, that they stopped prospering, uh, and so it's a debate that actually has significant historical consequences. So, at any rate, critical, uh, after, critical you know, consequences. It, it's very interesting, and and after spending you know many years sort of going back and forth with my colleagues and trying to sort of analyze their data and show where they, I think, misunderstood or misinterpreted. The data. Uh-huh. Um, I decided that the only way I could make forward progress was to excavate my own Galilean type synagogue, and that's what brought me to Hukok. So I, I spent a couple of summers wandering around Galilee and visiting sites because Galilean type synagogues, by definition, are found only in Galilee. Not all ancient synagogues in Galilee are Galilean type, but the type is found only in Galilee. Uh, so I visited a number of sites in Galilee, and I was looking for a site with an unexcavated that had signs that there was an unexcavated Galilean type synagogue. After you know visiting various sites, I decided Hukok was the best candidate for my purposes, and I started the excavations there in 2011. Um, and that very first season, we completely serendipitously, because we we you know we came to this site that had never been excavated; it was all covered by weeds and by rubble, and and you know you really couldn't see anything. And so, completely serendipitously, that very first season. We, we started excavating one square and came down on the east wall of the synagogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so ever since, we've been basically, you know, going from there. And our second season is when the surprises started. And that is that in the second season, we got down to the synagogue floor and found that it was paved with mosaics. Mm-hmm. This was surprising because Galilean-type synagogues, typically are not paved with mosaic floors. Usually they just have flagstone pavement, which is what you find at Capernaum, so I had not anticipated finding mosaics. But, okay, we have mosaics, and we have mosaics, but we have amazing mosaics. And uh, it turns out that our synagogue is decorated not just with amazing high-quality mosaics, and I should also say before I go on and start on the mosaics, that it turns out that our synagogue building dates to the 5th century, so it does date to the Byzantine Christian period, and that's significant for me. Um, but it turns out that the synagogue is paved with um, mosaics depicting all sorts of biblical stories. Uh, we have until now two scenes of Samson. Uh, one is a scene that shows uh, the episode of Samson and the Foxes that's described in the book of Judges 15, where Samson takes uh, 300 foxes, puts them in pairs, ties their tails together, and puts lighted torches between their tails, and sets them loose to burn down the agricultural fields of the Philistines. 
We have uh, a scene showing Samson carrying the gate of Gaza, which is an episode described in the book of Judges 16, where Samson goes to Gaza to sleep with a prostitute, and during the night the people of Gaza sort of assemble and decide that when uh, he comes out of the prostitute's house in the morning, they're going to ambush him. But what he does is he fools them, and he gets up in the middle of the night, and he picks up the gate of Gaza, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he carries it towards Hebron. So we have a scene of Samson carrying the gate of Gaza on his shoulders. Uh, we, this summer, discovered uh, in the middle of, of the hall, of the synagogue hall, we discovered an amazing scene of Noah's Ark with uh, pairs of all sorts of different animals. And uh, below that, or uh, to the south of that, an amazing scene depicting the parting of the Red Sea where uh, Pharaoh's soldiers are being swallowed by fish. Um, and uh, we also have an amazing mosaic that is apparently not a biblical story, the first time a non-biblical story has ever been discovered decorating an ancient synagogue, a scene which depicts a meeting between a Greek king, either Alexander the Great or one of his successors, and a high-ranking Jew who is apparently a priest. Uh, I think that this scene depicts the legendary meeting between Alexander the Great and the Jewish high priest, which is a story that is well-known from ancient sources like Josephus and rabbinic literature. Um, mm -hmm. But there are other possible interpretations of that scene. Uh, and so, you know, every summer we go back and, and we just keep finding, you know, every summer more and more amazing mosaics. Tell us about the excavation itself. How are you running it and the nature of, I'm sure you're doing some interdisciplinary work with it. Tell us a little oh, about sure. the dynamics. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, even though the, um, the uh, synagogue is what gets the attention, it's not... It's not the only thing we're excavating, of course. I mean, when you, when you excavate, we're, just not, we're not like just going for the synagogue. So one thing that we did in our first four seasons was to also excavate part of the ancient village that's contemporary with the synagogue so we would have a context for the synagogue. We would have some information about the life of the people who built the synagogue and who used it. And mm -hmm. we've also, of course, been excavating remains above the synagogue in order to get to the synagogue, which include a 1948 village called Yakuk, which was abandoned in 1948 and um, then bulldozed by the Israelis in the 1960s. And we are excavating the remains of that modern village on top. And then we have also found that there is a very significant early Islamic or medieval reuse of the synagogue um, as a monumental public building. Our indications are so far that this later building also was a synagogue, which is very significant, and in that period they actually enlarged the size of the original synagogue. So there's all sorts of interesting and amazing stuff besides the synagogue and the mosaics, but that's what gets the attention is the mosaics. Um, I have a very large team of people who I go into the field with every summer. It's, as I told you earlier, it's the first time I've ever been the PI, the principal investigator, you know, the sole director of mm -hmm. an excavation. So it's very complicated. It takes a lot of time. I spend a lot of my time raising money to fund the excavation. It now costs me over $200,000 a year to fund right. this dig. Right. Um, and uh, I run it as a field school for academic credit through UNC Study Abroad. So I have a lot of undergraduate students from UNC who participate. I also formed a consortium of schools uh, 
not just UNC, who send faculty and students to participate. So my current other consortium members are the University of Toronto, Baylor University, and Brigham Young University. They all contribute uh, money every year um, to help fund the dig as well, and we have their their students and, and faculty on the dig with us. Um, so this I is have, all privately funded? It's all privately funded. And uh, I have a... Um, I have a very large staff of specialists. You asked about specialists. So I have specialists who all go into the field with me. Um, I have my, my, my most senior staff members are Israelis. I have three Israeli senior staff members, my assistant director, who's an archaeologist with the Israel Antiquities Authority, um, my site conservator, and my dig administrator. But everybody else comes from uh, outside of Israel, mostly from the U.S. and Canada, and those are the people who do all of the specialty work on, you know, the pottery, the coins, um, the glass, the uh, paleobotany, the you know, the archaeozoology. Um, you know, all of that stuff is is done by specialists who who are part of the team and who come every year. I also have a senior staff member, one of my uh, senior area supervisors, who is from Malta. Actually, he's a Maltese archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an international team, and uh, but mostly not Israeli. And and um, it's a great experience for students. We do it for one month every summer, the month of June. Um, and students, you know, as I say, if they come as undergraduates, I also have graduate students, obviously, but the undergraduates can come and get credit for it. And um, in addition to all of the aspects of learning about archaeology in the field and through lectures and stuff like that, we also have a program of field trips that we take them on. So it's a, it's a complete, you know, program for that month. And where do you see the excavations going? What kind of problems are emerging, research issues? Obviously, one of the interesting ones is, as you had indicated, you have a non, uh, non-biblical scene that is depicted on the mosaic. What other types of, of work are you seeing, and what kinds of... Right, and I, and I actually, you know, I have among my staff members a mosaic specialist who is responsible for researching and publishing the mosaics. So uh-huh. um, she and another colleague have authored a 130-page-long study of just that mosaic, which they've submitted for consideration to an academic journal. Uh, our, uh, I, I have received funding from a number of different um, you know, organizations and foundations, including the National Geographic Society. And so National Geographic um, is also going to be publishing some of our results and, you know, media in, in different ways online and, and eventually hopefully a magazine article, we'll have to see. Um, but the, you know, the research questions that, you know, you can go from the very large to the very small. I still am concerned with getting more uh, getting more data for the dating of the building. Now, we have data that, that, you know, we have finds that date the building to the beginning, no earlier than the beginning of the 5th century, but it's from a limited area, and I would like to have more of that. Uh, we are still completely uh, baffled by our early Islamic to medieval building, which we also need to narrow down the date for, but, but also the function, the plan of it. It's just, it's, it's a complete anomaly. Um, and uh, and then you know the mosaics. I mean, once we get the whole thing uncovered, uh, will we find that there is some coherent program to the mosaics or not? You know, was there some underlying theme that unites 
the various scenes that we have, or are they just kind of random? Um, we may never know the answer to that, but, you know, that's certainly one of the questions that would be nice to try and answer. Um, so, you know, there are, and there are many other, I mean, you know, for every, for every question that you answer in archaeology, you, you raise ten more. Another one, right, answer, yeah, of course. Right? <laughs> so, I'm sure there'll be plenty of unanswered questions at the end. How long are you planning to go with it? Uh, well, at this point, we are planning to excavate the entire synagogue. We've uh, been in the field since 2011. We're anticipating, it's hard to know for sure, but at this point, we're anticipating another four to five excavation seasons. And then, of course, one of the big questions is what will happen after that. Hopefully, um, the Israeli government authorities, various authorities, will be able to develop the site for tourism. That would be nice. Right, but right. whether that will happen or not will depend on what they do. It's not That's not my responsibility and not my problem. I hope it does happen, but it requires an awful lot of cooperation between different government authorities, and that's a very complex thing. Of course, of course. And do you see going on another season or two, or how long is... Any, any oh, I'll be there until, you know, I'll be there as long as I need to be until we finish, right? And then I have to, right. then, then actually the work begins because then I, I need to sit and publish what I've, what I've excavated. So, so that will be many more years of working on publication once the field work is done. Do you have any other projects going on right now, or is it all focused on? Uh, what? That's not enough. <laughs> I'm just curious. So, I mean, yeah, archaeologists right typically January, work on. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. America, and you know, I have the dig at Hukok, and yeah, of course, there are other things that are smaller, but no, I don't have anything else major, and I don't want to have anything else major good, right now. I can't. It's it good for for the public to understand what an archaeologist does, and and yeah. how many different. Uh, uh, pots there are to deal with, and you've certainly done a tremendous amount of work so far, and, and uh, we hope you continue re research going forward. And uh, with that, we're going to have to conclude our presentation and our very, very in, in, it's compelling um, interview with Dr. Jody Magnus, and I want to thank you so much for enlightening us on recent developments in biblical archaeology. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, and until the next time, this is Joe Schuldenrein for Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and we'll have another broadcast next week. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.